All through my working life, my impetus wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those actors that was sitting around kind of going, well, I, I want to play Hamlet by the time I'm 30, and then I want to be making movies by the time I'm in my mid 30 You know, I, I never planned anything. There was no strategy. My only impetus was to stay employed mm. and to keep making money so I could, you know, pay my rent and, you know, and, you know, and as I got older, you know, look after Qualify my family. For health and insurance. And, yeah. Exactly, all of that. And so I, when jobs came up, I, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this with any shame because I'm I'm proud of the I'm I'm proud of the fact that I managed to you know fulfil my obligations. But very often, in the early days, certainly I would take jobs that now, and when I think about, it, I kind of go, oh, sh- you know, I shouldn't, I wouldn't have done that now. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or an episode of The League where I gave Kevin a colonoscopy. Hey, it's a living. Our guest this episode is Alfred Molina. Two different Spider-Man movies with a bunch of different Spider-Men. Boogie Nights, Prick Up Your Ears, Raiders of the Lost Ark a short that he did for Funny or Die a few years ago that we talk about, a production of Cherry Orchard over on the west side of L.A. This guy has done so much, I could barely skim the surface, but it's a a really fun talk about uh, the craft and the ups and downs that come with this business and how you cope with the ups and downs that come with this business. We talk a lot about Los Angeles theater L.A. theater kind of gets a bad rap because, you know, we're not New York and we're not Chicago and we're certainly not London. But there's a scrappy sort of do-it-yourself quality to the theater here that I really respond to. It it reminds me vaguely of punk rock. I just closed a, a... adaptation of a Chekhov play, a loose adaptation of a Chekhov play uh, called Bad Person, which was written and directed by Whit Hertford. Uh, You know Whit because he is the kid at the beginning of Jurassic Park to whom the Velociraptor is explained, um, where Sam Neill explains how a Velociraptor kills you to that, that little kid with the big blue eyes that looks terrified. That's Whit. He writes and directs his own Chekhov adaptations now, and I did one. We just did a quick little two-week run at a theater in Koreatown. So satisfying. So fun. And we talk about that. Alfred Molina and I, uh, we talk about, God, that's a crazy sentence to say. Alfred Molina and I talk about, wow. We talk about the immediacy of theater and how great it is to be in front of an audience, particularly after, you know, having no theater at all for about 24 months. Uh He's a lovely guy. He has a terrific reputation. He earns it. You find out why. Um, he is uh, a real delight to talk to. You're in for a treat. Please welcome Alfred Molina. Hey, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here. DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger IV. Hi, hi, hi. Can't wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now.
You have, um, you really do have a reputation as one of the easier guys to work with in this business. I don't know if you're aware of that, and maybe I'm going to ruin it by mentioning it. Maybe you're going to suddenly become this uh, this vile prick uh, moving <laughs> forward. But did you? Is that just your common decency, or did you maybe have a couple rough experiences when you were starting out with people who were just not pleasant, and you were like, "Oh, I don't want to be that." No, I, I well, I, I, I like to think it's just the way I, you know, I, I I'm not. It's, it's a hard question to answer, really, because it's like it's a bit like saying, you know, have, it's a bit like being asked, "Have you stopped kicking your dog?" <laughs> because whether you say yes, like that. whether you I, say whether you say yes or no, you're you're kind of equally damned, you know. Oh, but I, I, well, <laughs> I, but I, I, th I think um, I, I've never, I've never. I mean, I've been acting a long time and I've been on all kinds of sets with all kinds of people. I've only, I don't, no, no, I haven't. I, I nearly said I've only once seen really bad behavior. And in fact, it wasn't really bad behavior. It was just someone who was really just at the end of their tether and it, it could have happened to anybody. So I, I haven't really experienced that kind of mean, horrible rudeness that, you know, very often we hear stories about, oh, did you hear what so-and-so said on the set? Do you hear what so-and-so said to so-and-so? I've never experienced them. I mean, I've, I've certainly been in rooms with people who are, are very passionate about what they do and they're fighting for their corner and they really right. believe in what they're, but that's a different thing. That's, the, you know, that's, um, that's to do with, you know, performers, creative people. That's to do, their... that's to do with the actual work. That's not. Yeah. Brick, yeah. Brick but I've never, yeah. I've never, I've never, I've never seen anyone behaving like a prick for the sake of it. Oh, that's good um, to hear. You know, uh, 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 but you know, but you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, when I hear gossip about it, I'm I'm just as I'm just as into hearing the juicy bits as anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> no one's saying you're above the fray. No, I'm no, not I, above I, the I, fray, I, certainly not. It's like when you know when people you know people say, "Oh, are you one of those people that when you hear someone saying, oh, guess what so and so did,' do you kind of go?" I'm really not interested in gossip. No, I'm not. I, I kind of go, Ooh, what did they do? Oh, I lean in. I lean into that. Oh my God. Give me more. Um, yeah. But then I get all frustrated that they continue working anyway. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have a 12 year old son, so I have to begin. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I have to begin with a couple of Spider-Man questions. Are you in for a couple of Spider-Man questions? Sure, 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 sure. Okay. He specifically wanted to know, <laughs> Um, were the tentacles CGI? And I thought, well, they probably were, but I wonder if he had something back there just to kind of balance his weight. No, no, that's a very smart question. Uh, no, he's absolutely right. The, um, uh, the, 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 in the, the first iteration of, of Doc Ock in um, Sam Raimi's movie, right. the, it was a mixture of CGI, puppeteering, real tentacles attached to me with, and each tentacle had two, when necessary, had two puppeteers. Really? Them to give them some light, like, for instance, if we were in a shot like this, you know, mm -hmm. with that kind of frame, you'd see a tentacle in the background kind of moving and, you know, undulating. And those were the puppeteers kind of keeping them alive, giving them some personality. Right. But this time round, uh, mm -hmm. with the new one, it was all CGI. I didn't, was it I didn't, really? I wasn't wearing any, apart from the costume, I wasn't wearing any attachments at all. Interesting. Yeah. I want to talk about the difference between the 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 two styles of Spider-Man because there's a different tone between the Sam Raimi um, Spider-Man and the far more ironic MCU that you re-enter 17 years later. Mm. Was that something that was 
you were guys were conscious of? Were you and Willem aware of the fact that there was just a, a different tone in these contemporary Spider-Man in uh, superhero movies, really? Yeah, th- th- not I, well, I, c- I can't speak for Willem, but certainly as far as I was concerned, I wasn't aware of a massive shift of tone in terms of, you know, how the movie's going to be, how the movie's going to look or anything like that. What I was aware of was just how huge the leaps have been in the technology that's available. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the the fact that, uh, you know, just the just the notion of the of the tentacles not being um, real anymore, they're just being completely, you know, that's a perfect example of just how things have moved on. Yeah. Um, but I think the 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 what what marks both of those movies what what made john watts's spider-man spider-man movies and sam raimi's movies so wonderful is that they were both directed by people who and had creative teams of people who absolutely love the genre they love this world this is a huge thing for them and they take it very very seriously and they're very passionate about it and so the detail that goes into it is just, you know, phenomenal. And but as an actor, very much you're in a sense, you're a you're a you're a functionary in a sense, particularly if you're playing the bad guy, mm-hmm. because you have to fulfill certain functions, you know, you and but what makes this movie interesting and different from the previous one is that here we see the full redemption of of uh certainly of doc hog yeah you know which makes me think that maybe he he they may be putting him to bed you know uh because i think i don't think i don't think you can be a good person with a moral compass who turns into a villain and then comes back to being the decent person he was and then one can you (laughs) i don't think uh, i don't think that would happen but it, it it was it's been a an extraordinary experience. I mean, and one that I would never, you know, I would never sort of uh, shortchange it because it's it's it made it kind of made my career here. I mean, I, I I I've always been ever since I've been living in the states, and and you know, I came here in, in the very early nineties. I I wanted to live and work in America. I wanted to I wanted to be part of the industry here. You're a citizen now, right? I'm a citizen. I became I applied for citizenship as soon as I could. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's been a wonderful, you know, a wonderful, wonderful experience to work on these films. It really has. And the fact that there were 17 years between the two iterations always makes me laugh because I always tell people that must have, that must be among the longest options any studio has ever had on an actor. <laughs> but then I stopped. But then I stopped making that joke when I found out that Willem was coming back for the movie as well because his his option was even longer, like yeah, uh, like, like twenty years or something, you know. Oh my god, so. is it is it? Do you find yourself? Do you? I mean, you have to, I guess. Do you have to sort of change your performance a little bit, or are, is it more a question of like, no, what was I doing in two thousand and four? What was that? How do I get back to that? No, no, it wasn't that really. I mean, uh, when when John Watts explained, because I, I the first my first question was, how are you how are you going to bring him bring him back? I mean, I died, he died, and then I remembered a conversation I had with uh, uh, Avi Arad, who at the time was running Marvel, okay. um, and he was like you know overseeing the production and and uh, with Sam Raimi, and I remember saying to 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 Harvey at the time, 
Well, I guess um, once we've shot this scene, I guess, you know, your option on me is uh, is null and void because they signed me up for two movies. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm dying, there's no way I'm going to be in the second one. Mm. And he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, nobody dies in this universe. <laughs> you know, so keeping all his options open and it turned out to be prophetic. But, um, you know, it, but what, what, so when I talked to John, I said, so how are we going to, what are we doing? Are, are, are we saying things about, you know, are, are, am I coming back 17 years after my death? Or, and he said, no, we're going to pick it up exactly from where, from just before where you left it. Amazing. That something's, you know, something's going to happen. Uh, then he started talking about. Then he started explaining the whole thing about how these different universes are all existing, a parallel. And then suddenly something happens, and they kind of cross, and people are jumping in and out, and that just blew my mind. I just kind of went, "Oh my god, that means you know." Oh. And so, of course, the movie, as your son very well knows, the movie uh, did the most extraordinary thing by bringing all these universes together into a kind of multiverse and stuff, and and that. That I thought was the exciting part. That was yeah. that was a thing that was going to be. So I I I'm I'm I come I arrive from having a fight with my Spider Man. Right. I'm then I'm then in a slightly different place with this with Spider Man, who I think you know, and then this and then the whole notion of discovering that your Spider Man isn't the spider you know all of that was like, <laughs> just blew my mind i thought that was all fantastic i loved all that it was it, it's such a fun because it becomes by its very nature a sort of meta commentary on on the genre itself you know it, it becomes this sort of thing like well who is your spider-man and, yeah, and which is the yeah. same thing that the fans are are asking themselves yeah. as they sit in the audience yeah. um we all became the villains for a moment like well no that's the one i grew up with so it's obviously <laughs> that's right that's right and i think in a way you know kind of uh slight in a you know perhaps an indirect way it's almost also a comment on the whole wonderful magic of movies themselves the the the, the idea that you can you can ask an audience as long as you pay them back you know yeah. with your creativity and your ent and entertainment and and as long as you pay them back with something good they their capacity the audience's capacity is to suspend their disbelief is infinite yeah and, and so these movies you know it's like when people say oh how can they how can you do another how can they ever make another one of these films well it's because our imaginations are infinite right and and as long as you can present an audience with something that's going to be exciting and different and and is going to involve them and, and and intrigue them you can go anywhere with it you know i mean when you look when you look at the plot of a lot of particularly a lot of these huge kind of fantasy movies mm -hmm. you look at the plot in a kind of cold logical way very often they don't quite make sense right how can this happen if this has happened? How can this happen? You know, and it always reminds me of um, Alfred Hitchcock's thing about he uh, he he, always, he said the worst people in the audience were who he called Mr. and Mrs. Plausible. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that. <laughs> they were the ones that were always going, ah, oh, well, that wouldn't happen. You know, that, that but the thing is, audiences will suspend their disbelief if what they're if what they're seeing is kind of, you know engrossing them and 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 thrilling them it, it, it's uh we'll go anywhere for a good story i think we always talk about in our house we always talk about the logic police and uh sometimes yeah. if you're watching a marvel movie the logic police are off duty 
sit down. The lobby police are not showing up tonight. There, yeah, no one's calling yeah, yeah. them. They're yeah. off duty. They're having yeah. donuts somewhere. Just let them be yeah. and uh, enjoy yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, it's funny though, isn't it? That when it comes to comedies, we never we never think of the logic police being off duty because very often great comedies have no logic. Oh yeah, but we oh, never absolutely. but we never question it when it's in a comedy or a farce or something that's making us laugh our heads off. We don't we don't, we don't kind of go ah that would never happen. But you know, <laughs> but but we're very keen to do that with sort of more serious fare. But I think you're right. I think there there is there's there's a joy in that as well because I think there's that suspension of disbelief, allowing yourself to be taken somewhere where you didn't expect is such a delightful feeling. Yeah. You know, definitely, definitely. And the way, and, and not to spend too much time on it, but the way the Marvel movies of late have always grounded these characters, that moment between Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, where they're complaining about their lower back issues. Yeah. I could have watched that for two and a half hours. Yeah, and I was as a middle-aged man myself, I was just like, this is my, yeah. this is my world. I want to live I thought here. that was, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd I'd love to know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know Toby or 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 or, or uh, Andrew well enough to kind of just phone them up and ask. But I'd love to know just how much of that was improvised. <laughs> I know that was my question too. Like, there's a there's a spark to this dialogue. Yeah, that there was, it was some, not written. <laughs> there was something in that you just kind of went, oh. And, and of course, <laughs> you know, when I saw it, when I saw the movie, the audience just. I mean, just lapped it up. I mean, it was just so perfect. It was a perfect little moment. Yeah. All of the all of the appearances of you guys um, popping into the modern stuff was great, and that stuff played really well. And then second to that was uh, two guys bitching about uh, you know their vertebrae. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little. I got a little emotional actually. There was one scene where uh, I, I I suddenly meet Toby. Yeah. You know, and and, and he kind of goes. You know how are you, doctor? And I go, and I go. Oh my god! You know, it's, it's nice to see. It's good to see you. I got terribly. I got very teary in that scene. Yeah, I kind of went. Oh shit! This is like uh, this is a big. This is a moment. You know, and and it was uh, it was delightful. And it was, of course, delightful to see Toby again. It was. You know, we 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 did have a giggle on set about you know sort of. Uh, you know, I, I think I said something like, I'm, "I'm terrified. I'm terrified that I might be a bit too old for this." <laughs> <laughs> he had to have the same concerns i think as, he, as I, the well, oldest he kinda, spider-man yeah, he had to have the yeah same concerns. He, was, he was sort of he kind of like did that thing that he did you know <laughs> 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 again we can fix all sorts of matter uh things with cgi these days i yeah. want to back up though you said something just now about how it it quote unquote made your career but from the outside it looks like you're you had a spike before that, somewhere around 98, 97, I feel like Boogie Nights did something. As, yes. as small a role as that is, Boogie Nights did something where suddenly you were, it felt to me from the outside, like your phone was probably ringing a lot more. Yeah, well, there was, yeah, but the, but it's but it's not unusual, and it's very, very typical for for actors for that thing for that kind of thing now, particularly particularly character actors like me who you know we're not you know our name my name can't greenlight a movie, okay. but I know that uh, you know I, when it comes to the supporting roles, if there's one that's suitable for me, I'm sure they'll I'll I, you know I'm sure I might get a phone call. But, but it's one of those things where it doesn't greenlight a movie, but it doesn't hurt either. Like if somebody sees that on the list, they go, oh. Well, I hope you're right. I hope that's true. I, I, oh, I think that's clearly the but case. But I, th- I, th- I think 
I think round about the late nineties, what I, I did a I did a play uh, called Art that was yeah. a huge hit in New York. Yeah, uh, it won best. It won the Tony for best play. Yasmin uh, Reza. That's it. I, I got uh, I, I got I got a Tony nomination um, for uh, for best actor, and so all of that was going on, and then. Uh, you know, a couple of movies like Frida and Boogie Nights kind of popped up. And and so you kind of have these moments where you, you, you know, you, you start looking at, I mean, I, I don't look at my career in any way other than. No, that's my job. It, it being just like a kind of, it looks to me like kind of like a crazy quilt <laughs> uh, of, you know, and I, one of the, one of the best books on the business. In fact, I've got it here. I've got I've got an uncorrected proof copy. I'm never sure. I'm not sure if it was ever published. I think it was. Um, Lee Grant wrote a book hmm. called "I Said Yes to Everything." <laughs> That's it's, amazing. It's the most wonderful book about a the life of an actor and mm -hmm. and and the ups and downs of it and and so on. And that's basic. And I, the reason why I suddenly warmed to that book and I grabbed it was because. That's effectively what I did. You know, my, my, all through my life, all through my working life, my, 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 um, my impetus wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those actors that was sitting around kind of going, well, I, I want to play Hamlet by the time I'm 30. And then I want to be making movies by the time I'm in my mid 30. You know, I, I never planned anything. There was no strategy. My only impetus was to stay employed. Mm. And to keep making money so I could, you know, pay my rent and, you know, and, you know, and as I got older, you know, look after Qualify my family. Health insurance. And, yeah. Exactly. All of that. And so I, when jobs came up, I, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this with any shame because I'm, I'm proud of the, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I managed to, you know, fulfill my obligations. But very often in the early days, certainly I would take jobs that now, and when I think about it, I kind of go, oh, we should, you know, I shouldn't, I wouldn't have done that now. But I did it because that was the only thing available. Mm -hmm. You want to come and do this? I've got nothing. Yeah, sure. How much does it pay? You know, and, and my, and my uh, a, a, a very early agent of mine, uh, who's no longer my agent, um, said to me that I should because my question was how much are they paying, and they'd say, well, the, the fee is such and such. And my first question was always, how much is that a week? because <laughs> i needed to work i needed to know how much was that a week that because that was my mindset yeah and and oh well it works out to blah blah well that's pretty good okay i'll do that yeah. and that was so that was what drove me was just kind of stay employed and every and when, and when you live your life like that every now and again you'll have these spikes and troughs where suddenly you'll do a job that garners a lot of attention mm -hmm. but you know when you look at it objectively you'll see that those spikes are always followed very, very quickly by another dip. Mm -hmm. You know, big movie stars, that spike stays constant. They're constantly working. They're constantly in demand. They're constantly, you know, they're, they're working probably 300 days a year, if not more, you know, because by then you're kind of, you've got a brand. Right. And you've got to keep that brand in the in in the public eye, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. and and uh, I look at actors that I admire, actors who, my age, actors who I've grown up alongside. Like who? Uh, you know, people like you know Tom Wilkinson, Jim Broadbent, mm. um, 
not that I've not that I've worked a lot with with either of them, but you know I know them and we have worked together. But also actors who I admire from afar, actors that I've I've recognised as in a sense felt kindred spirits. You know, I hear them talking about the way they approach their work, and I kind of go, yeah, I like that's 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 what I do. Say Denzel Washington, for example, sure. who I think is like a phenomenal actor. But whenever he talks about his work, whenever he's done interviews, I always get the feeling he's a rather reluctant interviewee. You know, mm-hmm. I always feel there's something like he does, you know, he, he's doing it because you know he has to, maybe. But I don't know. I can't. I can't speak for him. But I listen to him talking about the work and how mm-hmm. he approaches it and what his what his values are, what his you know what his priorities are, and I kind of recognize. I recognize. I think yes, that's what I. Yes, I, I'm. I'm with that. You know, and, and so there's a. And all of those actors, you know, men and women that I, that I admire for those reasons, I see, I see their careers, particularly in the early days, and they've gone through the same thing. And it, and I think it's just, it's just the pattern that actors' lives take. When did you? You grew up pretty working class. Your 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 mom cleaned house. Pretty ugly working class, actually. Um, all right. Uh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, I'll let you pick the adjectives. Um, at what point do you decide that acting is something that you, Alfred, could do for a living? Well, the family history goes, and this is what my mother told me. Um, many, many years ago. She said that I was I was about nine years old when I first said the fateful words, I want to be an actor. Okay. But I don't I can't believe for a moment that I knew what I was talking about at that age. <laughs> I, I you know I, I I can't believe that at nine I was, you know, I was absolutely au fait with uh with all the intricacies of a of a of a creative <laughs> life. You know uh I think what I was, and I don't think I was a very good actor then either. I think what I was at um, nine at nine, I think you, you, I okay. just, you hadn't I'm, really found your instrument yet. Okay. No, not I, yet. I, I, I let myself off the hook, but carry yeah, on. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I hadn't found, hadn't found my inner voice. Um, but what I did, what, what I, but what I was conscious of was that I wasn't afraid of doing it. I wasn't afraid of, you know, I wasn't afraid of, of doing something silly, you know, and I understood at nine, I understood the joy of getting a laugh. Yeah. And I can remember the feeling. I can remember the moment. I I I was doing it. I think it was a school play, and I might have been a bit old. I was probably about eleven by now because it was like we were. At, I was at secondary school, like like junior school, mm-hmm. and we were doing a school play, and it was a production of a play. I don't know some some old play. I don't know. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, I had a line which was a cue for another character to come on, who I was waiting for. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I had to say something like, "Bring him forth, bring him to me," or something like that. You know, some rather grand thing. Bring him to me. And uh, and the actor, the kid who was playing this part, was nowhere to be seen. So I kind of, I just stood there, and I and I, I, I kept looking, and I think I said something like, "He's a little late," or or something to that effect. And I saw all the teachers at my school were sitting in the first two rows and I could see them lo- laughing. One of them was like, hold, you know, hiding his face cause he was laughing. Another teacher just let himself just roared. 
you know, I, but I could see it, it had an effect. And I, and I just, I can remember that feeling. I just kind of went, mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah, this is it. <laughs> this is it. And it was like, honestly, I can't, I can't underestimate, I can't underestimate this to you. It was like, John, it was like a, an out of body experience. Like my whole body just flushed. I was like hot. I was hot all over, but excited, excited beyond anything I'd experienced before. In in that moment, and of course, you know, I I I I saw I said something else like, "Yeah, he's really late," something like that. Yeah, that got another laugh to the point where, when this poor young kid who was late finally arrived, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was killing. I had a great thing going here. <laughs> I think yeah, I thought I've got a I've got a solid two minutes here. <laughs> I just I remember that feeling. I just remember that feeling. And and uh and and it was just, you know, but it but but the thing, but late much, much later, when I when I was doing art, oddly enough, on Bro- okay. on, on Broadway. Well, you have that one massive speech in art. Yeah, 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 incre- yeah. About your mother-in-law. That's right. Yeah, it's it's about uh, the, the, the whole speech is about the about the problem he's got that he, you know he he wants to he, he wants to invite his mother. No, he wants to invite his father, I think it is, or his mother to the wedding, but his parents are divorced. And right. one of the divorced parents says, well, if she turns up, there's no way I'm turning up. You know, that, that right. kind of thing. That's right. It was, uh, it's that. So um, when we were doing the play, my, my, one of my old English teacher, Martin Corbett, who's sadly passed away, he was the most, probably the most important male figure in my life, far more important than my father, mm. um, because he was the first adult to take me seriously when I said I wanted to be an actor. Wow. And he was my English master and um, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And after he retired, he and his, he, he and his husband uh, had a wonderful life. They, you know, they, they took, they traveled and stuff and he had, a, and he came to New York to see the play, mm. which absolutely just thrilled me. And, uh, he came the same night with his husband. They came the same night uh, that another friend of mine was there. So the four of us went to dinner after the show. And at one point, my friend Andy turned around to Martin Corbett, my old teacher, and said, so Martin, when, 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 when Fred was at school, was, was he a good actor? And Martin said, oh, he was a dreadful actor. Oh. Absolutely dreadful. <laughs> but he was a marvellous show-off. Oh. Wow. <laughs> So I think that's a, I guess that's how it started. My my intention is not to put you on the couch here, but I you did mention your father, and it is. I, I have no shortage of guests on this podcast who had bumpy relationships with their father, and I'm gathering that that was the case. Was it just a question of like, I don't want my son to be an actor. I want my son to be something more stable. What was his? No, was it was the disconnect. It, Oh, the disconnect was was uh, was basically that uh, my my parents divorced. Uh, I was quite young; I was about ten or eleven, uh, and my father was just very distant. Uh, and when uh, so, that, and there, and also there was a great deal of unspoken. You know, he blamed my mother. My mother blamed him. Um, I, my brother, and I were very much used as kind of. Uh, 
uh, we were used as weapons against, you know, what one parent would use us as a weapon against the other. Sure. Uh, very typical story of, of, you know, unhappy divorces. Um, and, but what, what was the, but the worst thing, I think, the, or the thing that kind of, kind of stayed with me and, and the thing that I now, I, mean, I laugh about it now, I think that's just the way we survive, but it was just his, my father's real kind of indifference to it and, and perhaps even a lack of respect for it for the for um, the craft of acting for the craft and and for the fact that i was involved you know that i he he i think i think he imagined that that being an actor was a kind of refuge for lazy motherfuckers who you know would either be you know they're either whoring around or they're taking drugs yeah. and uh and i think you know and i wanted to say to him as an older grown-up man i wanted to say well part of that's true yeah i mean <laughs> there's there's a lot more yeah. there's a lot more to it than that like any stereotypes stereo- don't exist in a vacuum you know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well my, my favorite one is you know when people get accused of terrible things and the person kind of goes let me explain <laughs> <laughs> no but i think you know i mean i remember once for instance i remember working very hard on a on a job i was working for the all shakespeare company we were we were rehearsing a tour when and i worked really really hard we'd, we we we'd rehearsed two plays that we were taking on tour and is this the, is this what like mid 70s oh, this was like this? oh no this was this was like uh early 80s early 80s okay yeah. but it's, it's so it's post raiders oh yeah post raiders definitely okay yeah, yeah. okay and um there's a perfect example of uh, the, the the peaks and troughs. You know, uh, uh, after Raiders, uh, you know, everybody wanted to know who Fred Molina was, and then suddenly, boom! Then you know, then I, I was I was back doing kind of you know, children's theatre for two years. Um, it, it, it's uh, but you know, it's the way it goes. Um, but I remember my father coming to see this coming to see this play, and his first reaction after seeing the play was he said something like, "Well, now that you're making a living." You know, maybe you can buy me that car. Oof. You know, because he, 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 I, I don't know. So I, 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 I think I, at some point in the past, in the future, in the past, I'd said something like, "Yeah, well, you, th- you think I'm, you think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good for nothing. I, I tell you, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make shitloads of money as an actor, and, and, and you know what? I'll, I'll even buy you a car. You know, but I meant it as a kind of <laughs> insult. <laughs> oh dear, he took it as, well, a, as a vow. Exactly. <laughs> So, and there was that kind of thing. So I, you know, but uh, not you know, but uh, it was uh, it w- w- things were frosty, definitely frosty. But what were um, the, I have to ask what the plays were for the RSC. Oh, you, oh, I did. Um, uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we did a production of Taming of the Shrew, uh, where I played Petruchio, and Jesus. we and we did a production of a Bertolt Brecht play called Happy End, uh, which um, is. It's a kind of musical. There's there's musical. There's music music in it. Uh, the storyline was kind of was the. I think the storyline of the play was the inspiration for Guys and Dolls. Oh, it's okay. the same story. It's a bunch of villains uh, and getting involved, and then one of them gets involved with a Salvation Army um, huh. lady and and the villains. And my, I played the part of a character called Sam Wurlitzer. Whose job in the in the in the heist is to dress up as a woman and pretend to be a woman of the night, a lady of the night, and stand on a street corner and distract attention from the actual robbery that's going on somewhere else. 
So part of my costume for that show was a full, full-on drag outfit. You know, I had I, I had makeup on. I had uh, sorry about this. Let me just cut this off. Um, I had makeup on. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my my late wife uh, helped me design the costume and the makeup and the hair. And uh, when my <laughs> actually this is quite a funny story. When my dad came to see the show, he said, "Alfredo, it's incredible." When you walk on stage as the woman, it was incredible. You look just like your mother. And and I said, in a moment of, you know, I kind of went, oh, do you think I look sexy? And then my dad said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it begs the question. You, I mean, it seems like a perfectly reasonable follow-up. You married the woman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, let's, let's skip ahead for a moment to Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, which is, unless I'm mistaken, that's your first film role? My very first movie. My God, what a way to come into it. But what's funny is <laughs> you watch, I, I just watched the original 1981 trailer. You're the very first face you see in that trailer. Yeah. You, you are peppered throughout. You barely live past the opening credits. Did that set up a weird sort of expectation for your friend well, group? <laughs> well yeah because I, I, I was getting phone calls from people <laughs> going fucking Alfred you're all over the fucking trailer you you told me you had a small part <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm kind of going I do have a small part if you go to the toilet after the credits you'll miss me <laughs> you know? but because you know as you know because because the um because that opening little I don't know five ten minute sequence has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It just right. sets up the character. It establishes sets up, him as the baddest yeah. motherfucker in the room. And yeah. That's right. And so, but so they, they, they mined that sequence for the trailer. Uh, so, and so it did, it looked as if it looked as if it was like, you know, Harrison Ford co-starring Alfred. Molina. Yeah. You look in the trailer, you look like the role that John Reese Davies ends up playing. You look right. like you're that prevalent in it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, uh, but anyway, I, 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 Oh God, that was, that was the most amazing week. I'll never forget it. I, Were I you was in on, South America? No, no. We shot that in Hawaii. Oh, nice. On the Island of Kauai. Oh, it's why I honeymooned on Kauai. It's lovely. Yeah. Gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And, and, I mean, but when I got cast in the movie, I was I was touring in a production of Oklahoma, playing Judd Fry, for like you know, hundred and twenty quid a week or something. That was the National Theatre production. No, no, no. Oh no, this was way before that. This was okay. this was uh, this was in nineteen what eight nineteen eighty something like that. My daughter, uh, my daughter, my 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 then partner was still pregnant with our daughter. Okay. Uh, so that was, you know, more than 40 years ago. Oh, no, of course. The, the National Theatre was like 25 yeah. years ago. Yeah, I see. And, uh, and it was like, I couldn't believe it. I remember, I, I can remember it so well. I got this phone call from my agent saying, you know, they, 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 there, was a, there was a casting director in England at the time, a woman called Mary Selway, who was the doyenne of casting directors. I mean, she had the most extraordinary reputation. She was brilliant. She, she introduced more young actors who became stars, men and women, uh, I think more than almost any other casting director. I mean, mm. she just, she just had, a, she had a, an eye, she had an ear, she had, a, she had a feel for young talent, and she was brilliant. Anyway, she said, oh, you, you know, she got me on the list. So I, I, and I went to 
the Inn on the Park, I think it was called the Inn on the Park, a very, very swanky hotel in, in the middle of the West End in London. I was very nervous. I even bought a, sh- a new shirt for the, uh, for, you know, for the interview. And I'm sitting in the lobby. And then this young woman, young American woman comes out of the lobby, all dressed in black, looking very chic. And uh, she says, Alfred, uh, Stephen will see you now. So she takes me up this elevator to the suite and the suite, the, the carpet is like rich, rich, thick carpets. You can't hear anything. You know, those cor- those hotel corridors where you can, you can barely hear yourself breathe. Right. Right. And I'm walking along and I'm really nervous and I could feel a single drop, a single rivulet of sweat that was running down my arm on the inside of my shirt sleeve. And I could feel it going down my arm and hitting my wrist. And I can remember catching that drop of sweat in my palm because I was so nervous that I didn't want anyone to see it dripping anywhere. I was like dripping. I was so nervous. So I'm kind of like patting my hand against my pant leg just in case anyone wants to shake my hand. And we come to these double doors and as we're getting to the doors, the doors open and out comes Stephen with Dustin Hoffman, who was just, I discovered later, was just happened to be in town and was just visiting and came to say hello. So he's leaving because Stephen's got his meeting with me. So I'm standing in this doorway with Steven Spielberg, who I'd never met, but I recognized him instantly, obviously. He was a huge star director already. And yeah. Dustin Hoffman. And I'm like, you know... And Stephen goes, Alfred, you know Dustin? <laughs> <laughs> to which you say, yes, how are you? Nice to see you again. So I just, I, I don't think I said yes or not. I just kind of like went, oh, hi, like this, you know. And then he leaves. We go into this meeting. And oh, I'll never forget it. It was like, I couldn't believe that. I, 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 just, I just saw Dustin Hoffman. So I'm sitting in the room with, uh, with Stephen and... The meeting goes wonderfully. I'm only in there for 10 minutes. The meeting goes wonderfully. He just says- Do you uh, read for him at this point? No, I didn't. And, no, there's I, not a no. ton of dialogue. No, I didn't read. And this is, this is where Mary Selway was so brilliant as a casting director. She would give her directors a list of names and she would say, look, these people, you, these, trust, trust me, these people can act. It's just whether or not you like the look of them. Right. You don't, you don't need to audition them. You know, they're, oh, wow. They're, they're not here because, you know- so that was lovely. So you kind of, I sat there and we talked. He, he gave me a basic rundown of the script and a rundown of the character. And he said, do you speak Spanish? I said, yes. Can you do a, can you do a South American accent? And I said, well, I can, uh, I said some bullshit about, yeah, yeah, I, I can go and study, you know, but uh, I, I think, yeah, I think I've got it. And then he goes, great. Okay. Well, uh, you'll be hearing from us. Thanks very much. So I get up and as I'm leaving, as I get to the double doors, the famous double doors, he says, Oh, Alfred, you don't have a thing about spiders, do you? <gasps> and I'm I'm on the way out, and I just kind of went, uh, no. You know, not thinking really seriously about it. And so anyway, a uh, few weeks go by, and then I, I find out that I've got the job, and I turn up for my first day on the set, and my first day was the shot with all the tarantulas all over me. Back. So it was kind of, 
Do you, in fact, have a thing about spiders? Or are you, no, are you no, okay? I was fine. Okay? I was, but but when I but when he said spiders, I imagined those little creepy crawly things that come out of the bath in the summer. You know, those daddy. We call them daddy long legs. Yeah, in, we in call them too. Yeah, yeah. And those you know, are totally harmless. Those things that you see in the summer sun running across your wall. You know, how the fuck did that get in there? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's all I. That's all I imagine. I didn't think in terms of you know big hairy tarantulas that look really scary. That's such a creepy scene. It's such a, a creepy and effective scene and sets up um, sets up the rest of the movie so well with his yeah. snakes thing. He's yeah. got his snake yeah. thing and you've got it's 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 it's, it's wonderful. I want to skip ahead a couple of years yeah. um, to the first of many times you've been asked to shave your head. Um, which is a shame because look at that. I mean, I, this is not a visual <laughs> medium, but what a gorgeous head. You're there. very kind. You're very kind. Um, um, but I, I want, I'm embarrassed to admit, I just saw Prick Up Your Ears for the first time a couple of days ago, um, where you play Kenneth Hollowell against uh, Gary Oldman's Joe Orton, um, a, a, a real life tragedy of, of the British theater. Um, Kenneth was, was you know, Jordan was a famous uh, farce playwright, um, not just farce, but was became famous for farce. And, and mm-hmm. Kenneth, his, his lover, assistant, possibly his tutor, and eventually his killer. Um, so you shoot that when? That's like what, 87? Something like that, 86, 87, yeah, something like that. Is that the era, is that still an era where an agent might say, ah, this is a gay role? I, I know in the States that was very much a thing. Like if you you had to be very careful if you took a gay role, mm-hmm. it could, you know, God forbid you get typecast forever or whatever. Was that a concern in the UK? No, no. not at all. Thank no, I, I, then you, I, and I think the answer lies in uh, Terence Stamp's great, description of he was asked about he was asked about his sexuality or sexuality in general and he he basically said there's gay there's straight and there's british (laughs) (laughs) wow Uh, i can't believe i've never heard that amazing that's fantastic and i and i think there's a kind of I, i i i've never met any brit actor who has ever said, I'm having second thoughts about playing a gay character, a, a straight British actor. Right, right. I, I don't think anyone, now that might be viewed as, as uh, you know, a, a, a keenness to do something, to you know, a, a fearlessness, or it might be now, it could be viewed as a kind of a cultural appropriation. I mean, no, I mean, I, nowadays, I don't think the role would necessarily go to you. That's, that's would, a fair exactly. Point. No, yeah. I mean, now, no, yeah, but, nowadays, but I would, nev- I would never have been, I would never have been offered that role. But a lot of time, in 40 years, however. Yeah. But a lot of the, a lot at the time, you know, um, uh, sorry, I'm just blanking for a second. Stephen Frears, forgive me. Stephen yeah. Frears, who uh, director. directed, uh, he, he just directed a movie called My Beautiful Laundrette. Right. which was a much more dynamic story that involved a gay relationship. And Dan Day-Lewis um, was, had been in that movie. And uh, so I think, you know, there was no, no, it, it was never regarded as, as anything that might endanger your career prospects. If anything, it was viewed as a kind of rather artistically kind of brave thing to do. Right. You know, because right. it was different, and it, you know, and 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 it and and also because gay themes in mainstream movies were still relatively unusual. Yeah, you know, they weren't. I can't think of many movies that, and when and films that did have gay themes were always hugely kind of trumpeted, and and there was always a great deal of spotlight on them because of mm-hmm. their 
because they were so unusual and, and out of the ordinary. But it was, uh, I mean, the way you described the part, I mean, I, I, I read something similar in the breakdown and you kind of go, oh, Jesus, this is amazing. What an amazing arc. It's what an incredible role. What it a fantastic. An inc- There's an argument to be made it's a better role than Orton. Um, just because he he changes so much, his but his yeah, confidence yeah. his yeah. confidence kind of slept. When you first meet Arthur, he's still got his hair. He's kind of the the cocksure guy in the uh, in the acting class, and you watch his insecurities sort of eat him alive over an hour and forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, uh, but they, they, it was it was the uh, the original casting for that hmm. was going to be. Um, I think I'm right. I think originally Ian McKellen was going to play uh, Kenneth Halliwell mm. and um, Keith Allen, who at the time was a very kind of uh, hip in the moment um, stand up comic and, and an actor. He was uh, very, uh, very kind of hot at the time. And he's developed now into a very, very, he's a wonderful actor. Um, but at the time he was like the hot young thing and he was going to play uh, Joe. And then okay. there was some, issue with financing and stuff and the whole thing got put on hold and then when they've reconstituted the project um ian had moved on so had keith and and then gary and i were in the frame well gary's coming hot off of sid and nancy right that's right so he just he's yeah. Yeah, yeah so he's 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 you know incre- he's got incredible heat behind him yeah yeah uh, after after that performance what's it been like to work with Gary, wonderful. I mean, I I did I did uh, obviously that movie, and we'd done a Mike Lee film together a, a couple of years before that, a film called Meantime. Oh, is which, that the one with Tim Roth? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. yeah. It's been years I've seen it. Yeah, it was. I think it was. I think I'm right in saying it was Mike's last movie that he made for television. Television. Yeah. I think after that, everything he everything he made was was, was features. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Gary working with Gary was fantastic, and I I I also did a, a play with Gary, um, uh, round about the same time. Uh, he he was uh, delightful. I mean, hardworking. He's 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 a he's a he's a perfect example of of the actors that I was looking at and you know, contemporaries, and I was kind of going, yeah, that's that's the way. That that's what that's what I want to do. That's the way I want to work. He had that. This wonderful capacity, and I think it's a gift that that some actors sadly don't have, which is to take the work seriously, but not yourself at all. I say that's so funny. I use that exact phrase about British actors all the time. That's so funny. I, I, I am on the record on this podcast saying that about, about being unique among British actors as opposed to American counterparts where... You know the, the work is is sacrosanct, but um, uh, but we can still sort of you know as you say take the piss out of each other, and yeah. and keep things afloat that way. That's mm. so interesting to hear. Yeah. The sort British of jokes say that. Yeah, the sort of jokes you get on a British set on a British movie between the act, the kind of you know the um, uh, the sort of banter that goes on. Um, you you have to be very careful in America because a lot of American actors uh, can't take it they, 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 they it's it's too i don't i don't know why i mean you know the wonderful moment i can remember like working with you know wonderful you know actors and you're in the middle of a big scene and you're rehearsing a big scene and then suddenly one of them will turn to the other and say are you really going to do it like that 
And you just know it's a joke. Yeah, everybody laughs. I mean, if, but if I turn around to you know, I can think of I can think of lots of actors. If I turn around and said that to them, they would be devastated. I have worked a couple times in the UK with UK casts or or on UK productions in other places, and uh, I was I will admit I was initially like, wait, what? Why would you? <laughs> what? I was thinking I was gonna do it. Should I do it another way? Oh fuck, you know. And my imposter syndrome shows up, and a whole bunch of stuff, you know, uh, it comes to play in. But but you very quickly understand that um, that is how things are kept light. That is how uh, yeah. things are are kept fun, yeah. no matter the, what the, the project is. That's right. It's 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 the green room energy. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, you know, and and Helen Mirren said something wonderful about this once. She talked about that the reason why British actors tell so many jokes and muck about and tell stories in between is it, it's it's not because they're not concentrated it's not because they they can't focus it's because that the banter and the 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 jokes and the storytelling and the you know that's it's grease it greases the wheels because you're yeah. you're in, you're with a cast of people who the chances are you don't know them very well you may be lucky you may be working with a close friend but the chances are most people in the cast will be new to you or people that you don't know very well and you may be having to create a family for this project. So you need to find a way to create an intimacy, however fake it might be, however thin it might be. But for the purposes of the project, it has to be authentic in some way. And you create that intimacy by telling stories. And, you know, and that's why like, British actors love British actors are always telling stories. But if you notice the best theater stories the best stories about acting and what are always disasters oh yeah you never you know you never hear a story ending with and then i got a great review <laughs> which you know, was no, followed by a standing ovation you know you know it's all about tragedy and disasters when things went wrong and when you made a fool of yourself or or when 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 something was disaster you know or, because that that's that bespeaks when you hear actors talking about oh so let me tell you what happened to me when I worked with on such and such, you know, and they start telling you this wonderful story of one disaster after another. What that bespeaks of to me is they are, that person is allowing you into their vulnerability in order to create a kind of intimacy, a kind of uh, a sense of you know, trust. Exactly. You know, that, that'd be much better put. And, and, and that is that that's, so it has a very kind of valid function, you know, that's so interesting to hear, and it has so very much been my experience with with my my British friends who who do harbor the idea that Americans just lack irony across the board, and we don't. But there is something, and it's hard to know who the you know is it the American method that is to blame for for this this uh, sense of self seriousness. It's hard to know who the uh, who the culprit is, but I have yeah. definitely noticed this vis-a-vis -vis my my British and American. Yeah. Well, I, I I I would argue, John, that it, it's not so much that there isn't a question of like there being a culprit involved. I think I think it is a cultural difference yeah. that goes much much deeper than you know just the sh just show business. I think the same thing applies in every walk of life and it's mm. to do and it's to do this is my opinion this is just my opinion yeah, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm no expert just you know full disclosure <laughs> I think it's to do with the fact that this thing of American exceptionalism exceptionalism yeah I think it's to do with the fact that you know if you have 
successive generations that are being told you can do anything, you can be anything you want to be. That creates a kind of sense of entitlement. And then when that's challenged in some way, even as trivially as kind of, you know, are you going to play the scene like that? (laughs) It kind of, it cuts to something very, very deep in England and probably most of Europe. You never hear people saying to each other, you can be whatever you want to be. If you want to be prime minister, you can, Right. you know, you, but we don't, we don't raise kids that way. No, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Right. That tends to be the, you know, the more the, the caliber of it. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that creates a kind of healthier sense of one's place in the world. One rarely hears the perks of the rigid class system, but uh, I, I appreciate you bringing it in regardless. <laughs> Let's talk about lulls for a moment. How do you cope with, with lulls in this business? You work a ton and you've got yeah. a gleeful lack of snobbery in your work. I know you say that like, oh, you're afraid of being unemployed or you're afraid of, you know, just the downtime, but there's a real glee in the work you take that isn't necessarily quote unquote prestige work. You did a friend's um, funny or die video um, yeah. called children's theater critic in which That's you right. are magnificent. That's my it friend. Was great. It was great fun. My friend Alex Fernie directed that and and you're wonderful in it. But there's a lot of actors of your stature who would look askance at something like that. But fuck you're em. all in fuck them, 100 percent fuck them. Um, so it isn't, but it isn't just a like, oh, I hate to be bored. There's a real sort of joy in the work that comes Well, across. I like uh, I I like working with if you know, I like working with younger actors and directors. Um, you know, if and you know, and this is no disrespect to my colleagues who are of the same generation as me. Right. Uh, if they ask me to come and play, I'll come and play as well. But it, it, there, there's something really exciting and fun to work with young directors mm-hmm. uh, and young actors because you get, you know, I mean, actors are very actors are a very different breed now. I mean, the, I mean, you take your average 25 year old actor now, who's kind of let's say not necessarily a big star, but, you know, a a working actor, you know, going through all the usual vicissitudes that we all deal with. Mm -hmm. There's, it's a different world now and a world where you're not really allowed to develop in the same, quite in the same way. My generation, I didn't go near a film camera for, for the first five years of my professional career. I graduated in 75. I didn't get in front of a film camera until 1980. Mm -hmm. I was just doing theater and, and doing theater. I was learning my craft. Whereas now a young actor coming out of drama school, they will almost certainly their first port of call in terms of their job, their first job, it will be a screen job. And that is a diff, that's a whole other milieu. And it's one where you can't, you don't really have the time. No one can afford the time to kind of learn your craft. And, you know, you do a play, you can be playing a, you'll be rehearsing for a month mm-hmm. before you get in front of an audience or three weeks. You do a, you know, you, you're, if your first job is a movie or a TV job, you'll get what, a couple of days, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that changes the energy. It changes 
the relationship you have, the relationship between the actor and their work changes. I was going to push this to later in the interview, but I'm bringing it up now. You do a, quite a bit of theater and you do quite a bit of theater in L.A., which is charitably viewed at best as the third theater t- uh, town in this country. Um, we are a distant third after New York and Chicago, I think, is the way we are viewed. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but we're not viewed as a big theater town. And yet you do and not oh, not just the big rooms, not just the Geffen. You do the Pasadena Playhouse. You work with um, uh, a guy named Jack Stalen, who has a that's really right. interesting career out yeah. here uh, running a place called the New American Theater. Am That's I right. That? Which used to be used to be circus theatricals. Right. Yeah. And we had a when I was when I was a member of the company, we had a, a home at the Odyssey Theater. That's right. Where we, where we did a whole bunch of productions. Yeah, I mean, th- 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 that's one of the great ironies about L.A. I mean, and, and you're right. I think outside of L.A., it's not viewed as a absolute mecca for theatrical endeavor. But the amount good of people, work being done. Yeah, that's, that's the, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the amount of great work and the amount of people who are willing to go and do, you know, 99 99 seat theater work and you know working on on you know for no money and and just doing it and it and it and it's a tradition in LA that's been going on for years i mean ever mm-hmm. since the beginning of the movies way back in the 20s there were screen actors actors coming over from new york mm-hmm. to do their movies and they would you know in their, in their free time they would set up these little companies and they do you know they'll, they'll, let's do a play while we're here, yeah. But there's a very long, honourable tradition of of theatre in, in LA. But it's true because of you know because of the TV industry and the movie industry, it's 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 rather kind of overshadowed. I mean, I always I always admire and really respect casting directors in LA who stay up to date with theatre. Yeah, and whenever I see a casting director at a play out here, I always yeah. kind of doff my cap. I'm always yeah, me too. Really me too. Because to I think that's because that means they're that means they're they're interested in they're interested in the people who want to practice their craft, you know, yeah. and, and that's uh, that's a wonderful thing. There's two classical, two strictly classical theater companies in LA off the top of my head. There's Antias and Noise Within. They're doing really steady, interesting regional work at the Pasadena Playhouse. You did The Father mm-hmm. there a couple of years yeah. ago. That's right. <sighs> This is a little delicate, and if we, if we, if you don't want to go down here, uh, I'll understand. Was it? I, I know you, you, you had a wife who was dealing with Alzheimer's, and the play deals with Alzheimer's. Was that either purgative? Was it healing? Was it too challenging? What was that experience like for you? It was, and uh, uh, I, I, I certainly don't mind you asking about this. Uh, uh, it, it was, it was all those things in many ways. Um, I. I wanted to do the play partly because it's just a great play and it's yeah. a great role. It's demanding, it's challenging, it's 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 hard to do. And those those parts are always the ones that are worth doing because it it it, it you know the challenges are fantastic. I also wanted to do it as as a kind of not a tribute, but as a way of acknowledging my late wife's experience in a way that meant something to me and my and our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't going to kind of, you know, uh, 
I'm not going to write a book about her or go on talk shows and talk about her, you know, uh, but, but I wanted to acknowledge the fact that what she went through uh, was an experience that the whole family went through. You know, when, when, a, when a member of your family has Alzheimer's, you're all, you've all got it in a way because yeah. you're all having to deal with a different reality. I've heard that. Yeah. And I wanted, I, I guess I wanted to say to myself and to our friends and to my late wife's, to my two stepsons and all the people that loved her. I wanted, I, I somehow wanted to say that the, the experience she went through as awful as it was meant something. And if, by doing the play and allowing my knowledge and my experience of that event, if that helps me to do a better job in telling this story, then somehow that's that's a gift I got from her. Do you it, see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And I also think there it, it pays dividends down the line in the sense of having done this and the people in your audience who might be experiencing similar things will feel seen, will feel, you know... I hope so. I mean, yeah, I hope so. I got, I got lots of, you know, I got a couple of letters and lots of people after the show would come up to me and say, you know, um, I, you know, my mother had Alzheimer's. I I was dealing with this with my dad. I was dealing with this with my, my father. I mean, people, it was amazing. People came out, you know, not out of the woodwork. That's not the wrong phrase, but people, people I never knew would just come up to me and talk about it. Hmm. And, and I wasn't, I was I was touched by that. I, I was flattered. I, I I was I I I felt that you know maybe the play was definitely worth doing. If you know there was one there was one uh, a gentleman uh, waited for me after the show one evening, and uh, he said uh, he came up to me and he said you know thank you for the play. I really enjoyed it. He said uh, I was in the same boat as you. My my uh, my wife. Uh, I, I looked after my wife with Alzheimer's for 10 years and he started telling me her, his story. And there were so many parallels and I, but I didn't say anything. I just let him talk because he was talking and, and, and he was giving me examples of moments and so on. And so much of it, I completely understood. And the next night when I went to do the play, my conversation with him was very much alive in my mind. And and I realized that, you know, the way, you know how uh, Joan Didion was very famously said, everything is copy. Right. You know, every experience you have in your life, if you're a creative person, every experience you have in your life is, is feeds, feeds that. Right. Right. And in a sense, your job is to turn that into something, you know, you, you filter it through your own intelligence, your own imagination. And I thought, yeah, because I, I and I realized, and I thanked my late wife every night in the dressing room, um, mm. even though she wasn't there. I thanked her. I thanked her because her experience, as awful as it was, has had at least one good, at least one good outcome, which was that I felt more qualified and more in touch with the truth to be able to kind of keep carry on a conversation about it yeah and and i think that's 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 the only gift if you if you're dealing with a family member who's going through a terrible illness like that a terminal illness yeah. 
in a way that's the only gift is that it it you learn from it yeah i i appreciate you talking about this that's um that had to be a a, a strangely beautiful experience it was you're absolutely right it that's 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 <laughs> that's exactly right it's strangely beautiful you're absolutely right i'll tell you another story you can you can cut all this out but since, refuse, since we're on, i refuse since, i'll do nothing of the, the kind since we're on the subject when my mother passed away as you know my mother was italian she she'd gone back to live in her village uh, when she retired oh. she went she went back she went back to her village to live and uh she met up with this guy, a very nice guy, Batista, who uh, she'd known all her life. And they kind of, you know, they became kind of friends and companions and they moved in together. She had a very nice, last four or five years of her life were really lovely. She died quite young. And as is the, the Italian tradition, she, they laid her in an open coffin and friends and family came and, you know, paid their last respects. And it was all very dramatic. It was very operatic, lots of crying and shouting and people like grabbing her and almost lifting her out of the car. I mean, just, it was all very, very, you know, I kept, I, my, I was with my brother and my brother was, was sort of let, at one point letting everyone come in, what the fuck's going on? And I remember saying to him, I said, I think it's the third act of Aida. Because <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> as you know, she had herself so, uh, sewn into the pyramid and uh, <laughs> she rests. But uh, it was all I mean, that's, very, so, that's such an interesting thing, though, to be both British and Italian, to be yeah. uh, to be have the, the one of the most demonstrative and one of the least demonstrative. Yeah, cultures grinding yeah. up against each other. Yeah, but the but but the 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 up the upshot of it was that as I was standing there, I realized, I thought I'm going to go to hell for thinking this. I, I remember thinking the thought came into my head, and then I thought, "Fuck, I'm going to hell." And the thought was, remember this feeling because it might come in useful one day. I, I'd be shocked if every actor hasn't. We all do. One we all do that, don't we? We all do yeah. that. Um, let's, um, you've got this really interesting thing, uh, that I want to ask. There is a weird tendency for you to play painters and I'm, I'm, I can name three. It's not a tendency. It's okay. not a tendency. It's, it's a choice. No, it's, it's, it's really, it's, co it's more like a coincidence, isn't it? I mean, well, but is it though? What is it about three, you? Three, three painters over the period of what? 47 years it's not it's it's not like a trend is it um i'm gonna go but the three painters are within tw uh, a 20 year span I'm, I'm counting the guy from the trial right oh right. bloody hell tintoretto oh my god you're counting that as well oh yeah, wow. yeah. okay oh yeah um uh and then i'm counting diego rivera and then i'm counting roscoe and those right. are all within about a 20 year window right i was thinking you were th I, I i was i was imagining I, is there talking, a fourth no 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 i was imagining you were talking about like painters who actually existed oh i see I, I forgot. Say, no, no, no. I've... Right, right, right. No, I did a dive. I mean, because especially when we had to push for a week, I had a little more time to do homework on you. And I rewatched uh, that that weird version of the trial, which I love. It has an amazing cast. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic David Thulis shows up in there. I know. Little, little baby yeah. David Thulis shows up. Yeah. It's great. Um, but what is it? Why do you think, aside from a passing resemblance to both Diego Rivera and Mark Rothko, for whom, again, they demanded that you shave that gorgeous head, what is it that draws, that makes people go, oh, Fred Molina, that's our guy. That's our painter. I've no idea. I've no idea. It, it, it's a, it, it's, 
it's a stroke of good luck perhaps it's it's uh i don't know i don't know it, i i i'm always <laughs> i know this sounds weird and i'm not being and i'm not i'm not sort of being sort of you know deprecating anyway because you know i've got a very healthy ego uh, you know I, I i i'm i i i'm always there's always a bit of me that is very flattered and surprised by any job offer. <laughs> you know, I, I, I you know, I, I'm not one of those people that kind of gets the offer and kind of goes, yeah, about time. Or, you know, yeah, I knew, yeah, I knew that was coming. No, I kind of, I'm, I'm always kind of going, really? Oh, that's very great. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, let me do not? this. I get to still <laughs> do this. <laughs> you know, it, I'm always, there's always a bit of me that's, and I think it's, I think it's the Brit thing because mm, um, yeah. there was, uh, Tom Wilkinson uh, has this joke where he would, you know, if if you if you flattered him about a job, if you sort of said, "Oh, Tom, I saw you in blah blah, you were fantastic," you know, he would say he would invariably say something like, "Yeah, got away with it again," <laughs> you know, or or sort of, "Well, I've got to keep moving," you know, or or when or when. Yeah, I remember. I remember somebody saying to him, "You know, you you have such an interesting range of characters. You go from one extreme to the other." And he said, "Yeah, well, it's harder to hit a moving target." <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> wow! <laughs> and I think there's, and so there is that element where we kind of go, "Really? Are you sure you want me to do that?" Oh, okay. You know, and and but I, I but I'm you know, but don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm, I'm always. I'm always grateful for it. I mean, I, I love. I love it that people still want to employ me. I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm delighted. Can we talk about um, Rothko in Red for a moment? Which yeah, you got an. You had a. It's a really interesting arc that job because you do it in. You do it at the Donmar. You do it in New York. You do it in L.A. Then you take off ten years and revive it in the West End. Is that yeah. right? Is that the arc there? That's right, because uh, because um, Michael Grandage, who's uh, who directed all the all the iterations of the show, um, and uh, and is also a friend. When when we did it at the Donmar, which was an, the equivalent of a, of an off Broadway house, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, a big off Broadway house, and yeah. it's a reputable off Broadway yeah. house, but it's small. But it's not quite it's not quite thought of as like the West End. You no, know, no, so, um, and. We did it at the Donmar, and uh, the New York Times critic at the time, I think it was Frank Ridge, or maybe it might have been Ben Brantley. I'm not, I can't remember. No, it's Brantley anyway, by that point. Was it Brantley? Yeah. Late, late, late aughts, that's Brantley. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he he would do this kind of yearly thing where he would come to London, catch a whole bunch of plays, and write a sort of, uh, a, write a kind of omnibus review yeah, of that's, all That's that's Brantley, yeah. And he gave Red at the Donmar it was like a love letter. Yeah. I mean, it really was. So that got Michael's investment partners in New York excited. And so we went straight to Broadway from the Donmar. Big success. We then did the show two years after that. We revived the production in LA. Uh, this time, originally it was with Eddie Redmayne. This time it was with uh, Jonathan Groff. Right? And then we thought that was it. And then when Michael was working with my wife on a musical, she she wrote the book. Uh, we were having, we had a couple of dinners in New York while they were working on the workshop. And Michael just said, um, do you have any interest in doing Red again? And I, my first thought was, 
shit, that was, we did that like 10 years ago. Why? Why? And he said, because I think we have some unfinished business. How so? And I, and I, well, that's what I said. How yeah. so? And he, and, he, and he said, we never did it in the West End. Oh, all right. And, uh, and then, he, then he basically gave me the numbers. You know, the Donmar seats 250 people. We ran for two months. Full houses. But in the West End, you run for two months. You're playing to 800 people. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was really, it, it was as much a, a, an economic um, equation as an artistic one. And also the but, West went, the West End one was filmed. That's right. We filmed it and which was wonderful. So we've got a, we've got a record of it. And then I recommend time, it by the way. It's, it's on, um, it's for rent on YouTube and it is, it is money well spent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good. yeah and it, they did it nicely. They did it very nicely. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's beautifully shot yeah, for yeah. a stage play. It's actually yeah. really well it looks great. Yeah. And we came in and did a couple of little close-ups, little extra close-ups just for cutting stuff, you know. So that got, was my got, question. Yeah. It got a little bit of it got a little bit of quality to it. You did some coverage yeah. for it. Yeah. And then we uh and then that time it was with Alfie Enoch, who's a lovely, lovely actor. Um and it was it, the, the the whole experience was huge for me. Huge. It was uh it's a it's a beast of a role and one that I was so proud of you know because it 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 was hard work and but it was work that was very very satisfying you know the the the, you could that that feeling in a theater i mean i get a bit emotional about it because i can't put it into words really but that feeling in a theater when there's absolute silence and you're kind of you kind of you enter some kind of space that that I, it, I don't know it's it's i think it's why we go back night after night you know it's uh i, <laughs> I once told i once told an actor off i did, i worked with an actor who would come off stage every night and kind of go nailed it Ew. got him right there you <laughs> i came up and when i heard him say it once i said if you think you've nailed it you haven't yeah and I said that just as I was walking on stage, and he got so pissed off with me. We we we, we talked it out eventually. You know, I explained to him what I felt about it, and and we kind of we we eventually kind of saw eye to eye about it. But it was this this notion of uh, that's what I love about theatre actors. Theatre actors, it's a process. Yeah, and and you know, you never, you know, you talk to Alan Alder. Forgive me for name dropping, but I did art with Alan. Right. Yeah, Alan Alder gave me the most extraordinary metaphor i said to him what do you do and it all started in a very casual conversation i said what what do you do when you you've got friends in a show and you go backstage and the show's terrible what do you say how do you get over that and he said you have to remember that when you go backstage after a show it's like walking into a burn ward And I said, and I looked, I went, oh, what do you mean? He said, you walk into a burn ward, you don't touch anybody. It's too painful. So you just talk to them about something else. And I thought that was the most generous, the most generous thing. You, you, you're gonna, you, you go backstage, you knock on an actor's door, you don't go in and kind of go, so what, you know, where do you think it went wrong? <laughs> 
You have to, you, and, and I think what he was talking about was you have to respect the sensitivity of people. You have to yeah. respect the fact that, you know, a group of people have just, they've just revealed themselves in a way that is, you know, to a group, to a room full of strangers, you know, and I, I've always remembered that. So I, I, you know, they'll, they'll all know my, my trick now, but whenever I've gone backstage, I always, always, always just talk everything up like it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Oh yeah. You're not going to do any good, especially if they're, if they're already opened yeah. and uh, they can't really adjust that much anyway, you might as yeah. well just, you know, give them a boost and then wish them well on their, on their next job. Buddy. What are some roles that got away? What are some roles that, that, uh, that might've been game changers or might've been ones that you might've had a lot of fun with or whatever it was, well, what were uh, some that, that slipped through your fingers for one reason or another? The, the one that did get away was way back in the, early early mid 90s um i worked with i did a movie called uh not without my daughter with right. um sally, sally field, field yeah. which was directed by a wonderful british british director named brian gilbert okay and brian after after that um was working on a project uh about on a movie about oscar wilde and i was offered the part of oscar wilde mm. And I was really, really excited about doing it, but we couldn't make a deal. And uh, basically they were, you know, the producers were refusing to pay me what I felt I, you know, I deserved and what I thought was fair for the role. And eventually, um, you know, in, in the end, we couldn't, it, it couldn't, we, we couldn't work it out. And and I was, I felt bad about that one because that was a, it was a really good script and it was a, a wonderful movie. And I would have loved to have done that. But Isn't the one that sad. Stephen Fry ended up doing? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And he did a lovely job at it too. All right, interesting. Stephen Fry, Jude Law. That's right. Oh yeah, of course. That's right. Yeah, it was kind of a break for Jude Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, interesting. I see that though. I see you as wild. I, I, I think that's I mean, well, maybe again, then thirty odd years ago. Uh, yeah, I know. I think he was. He, uh, I, I don't think he, 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 uh, he lived much longer. But um, I, uh, I, I, I see that. You definitely have the hair for it. I know I'm spending I'm spending a lot of time on your hair, but really to see it like kind of quasi in person, it's impressive. Um, talk to me about um, talk to me about Three Pines. Talk to me about let's let's in, let's look towards the future yeah, here. Th th three Pines. It's a um, a detective series based on a um, a series of books by a woman called Louise Penny, uh, who's a very successful writer. She's she's written something like twenty books, I think, on a, on on this character uh, Armand Gamache, who is a uh, chief inspector for the Sûreté du Québec. He's a oh. Canadian, uh, and it's it's a bit like it's got it's got a it's got a kind of um, all the crimes take place in this one place, Three Pines. This kind of mysterious, slightly bucolic but slightly weird village that no one quite knows where it is and. You know, the, the 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 locals say things like, you know, oh, you can't find three pines on the map, but it can find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you don't know. Uh, but it's uh, but it's a really intriguing intriguing series, and the character is what drew me. Was this the really? It's a he's not a he's not a he's not a kind of hard bitten, cynical cop with a terrible 
home life and with a you know disastrous relationships and kind of you know all he can do is drink bad coffee and kind of you know <laughs> You know, he's 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 a cerebral man. He's a he's a thoughtful man. He's a, a um, he's a he's a, a, a you know devoted to his wife, devoted to his family, um, devoted to the people that work for him. You know, he's he's got it's a very he's a very uh, interesting, quiet man, and but kind of brilliant and at the same time intimidating to his superiors who are constantly trying to kind of. Uh, set him up for failure and the the overarching stories are very topical it's kind of you know ripped not not exactly ripped from the headlines a la law and order but certainly you know storylines that are very current um you know talking about you know the plight of indigenous peoples oh, yeah um, you know, systemic racism uh, sexism all that you know the, the whole gamut of things that preoccupy us now and you, you shot it in quebec we shot it. We shot in Quebec, in uh, mainly in Montreal and just outside Quebec, near the eastern townships, which is a mm. rather beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Uh, so, and we're now, you know, we've completed uh, the first season, and we're now kind of waiting to hear whether you know the powers that be want to employ us again. Exciting. Yeah, Exciting. kind of. Yeah, yeah. But we've all been here before. Uh, what I didn't tell them at the interview was that my my you know, my record in television is less than stellar. Um, I've signed up for quite a few TV shows, but they've never lasted more than one and a half seasons. I guess that's right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 and looking over your resume, there's there's a few hospital dramas in there that were ones and dones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, it, all, most most of my TV output has been one and done. And and that, but but I remember jokingly saying that to my agent and she said well don't go in there with that attitude (laughs) (laughs) don't go in there looking like a failure don't don't wander in the ground i'm not going to bother decorating my dressing room because who are we kidding guys you know exactly yeah. That's quite a nice idea. Oh, you haven't done much with the trailer. Wow, well, not going to be here all that long. Yeah, yeah. A couple of throw pillows. That'll be fine. Thank you. <laughs> Alfred, I cannot thank you enough for your uh, your time and your and your honesty. And uh, this was a, a goddamn delight. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. And that is an episode wrap on Alfred Molina, who does not appear to be on social media. Hence, his perennial good mood. Three Pines comes to Amazon Prime this year. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm-hmm.